My name is Andrew, and welcome to MIR Meets. Doug Ford is the leader of the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario. Earlier this month, he won re-election in a sweeping landslide victory that's worth fully examining. So for this episode, I sat down with Henry Olson, a columnist for the Washington Post and a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. We try our best to dissect what Ford's re-election win indicates about the center of Canadian public opinion and what it tells us about the Republican Party's electoral viability in the U.S. Hope you enjoy. Yeah, so Henry Olson, thank you so much for taking the time to come onto the podcast. Thank you for having me. All right, so I would like to begin with a quote that you mentioned on in your article about uh, Doug Ford um, at the beginning, because I thought it was kind of interesting. But you, you said, many Republicans dream of making the GOP a multiracial working class party. Now it is true that um, in the 2020 election and in some elections later, it's been shown that Republicans have actually been making grounds among minorities that haven't traditionally give, given them as much support. So I think I want to sort of try to disentangle that. Like when it comes to like the dream that Republicans have to make the GOP more multiracial, um, how does it um, how does it differ from, for example, the type of multiracialism that the GOP, GOP autopsy um, in the aftermath of the 2012 election wanted the Republican Party to be? And how is that different from the type of like uh, multiracialism that the Republican Party seems to be heading a bit more towards now? Yeah, so uh, for, there's a lot there to unpack. So I'm going to break it down a little bit. First, with respect to the GOP aspiration, Republicans have known for a long time that they need to get more minority votes from, uh, from uh, Hispanic Americans, from Asian Americans, from multiracial Americans, and from uh, African Americans. The autopsy that you referenced was put out after the 2012 election defeat, and it was put together by the Republican National Committee. Uh, and it essentially had what I call the barrier thesis of how to do it. Its idea was that there's already a lot of minority voters who will buy the Republican idea of smaller government, pro-business policies and lower taxes. The reason they're not voting that way is because of the party's stance for immigration. Remove the barrier, the immigration policy and voila, Republican votes go up. I always thought that that was um, not true. It was not true because if you look at poll data with respect to what minority Americans believed, they actually didn't support the Republican policies that the authors of the autopsy assumed. They actually wanted a larger government. They didn't think lower taxes would produce more spending. I wrote an article before the 2016 election on this, where I pointed out that the gains among Latinos, for example, uh, under a barrier theory would be no more than a few percentage points not enough to turn a single state from Democrat to Republican. The new theory is that in fact, what needed to happen was not dropping the barrier on immigration, but dropping the barrier of thinking among Republicans among domestic policy. 
that a working class party that can attract Latinos has to be less anti-government. It can still be smaller than Democrats, but it can't be resolutely against government subsidy or against government activity. The new theory is that you need to be more nationalist. That means that you need to be uh, nationalist in foreign policy, which means America first, putting America's interest ahead of, uh, uh, of multilateral obligations where they conflict. But it also means being more nationalist in terms of economic policy, treating people as part of a national family, which necessarily means using government action in some way to help people in need of assistance or who need a leg up. That's de facto what Donald Trump offered because he's somebody who, while he supported a large tax cut, also took entitlement spending cuts off the table and was willing to use government power to create a tighter labor market through trade and immigration. And that attracted more Hispanic votes than, uh, than would have been possible of, under the barrier theory. So what the people who are support want the new multiracial working class theory want to do is figure out how do we bring this into being? How do we create a new Republican Party that is still for limited government, but is no longer anti-government? And in that respect, looking north to what Doug Ford has been able to do is a wonderful example. Yeah. You went a lot into the article about how he isn't afraid of spending a lot, um, um, creating a lot of deficits. So you also mentioned that, like, in terms of how the Republican Party can learn from this, you mentioned, quote, an American version of Ford Nation would likely govern considerably to the right. I found that kind of interesting and worth unpacking. So, like, what do you think of the argument that, hypothetically speaking, like a politician in the U.S. were to adopt like the exact same positions as Ford. Do you think that type of person would end up aligning more with like the moderate wing of the Democratic Party? Uh, you know, the Republican Party and I mean, the United States center of public opinion is to the right of the center of public opinion in Canada. The right, the center of public opinion. Uh, in the Republican Party is to the right of the center of public opinion in Ontario. It, you know, the thing to remember is that in, in Ontario, Doug Ford didn't have to deal with uh, large numbers of people who uh, in Canada tend to live in the prairie provinces or in Alberta, but anyone who wants to run nationally in the United States does. You know, and so you have to appeal to those orders. Doug Ford never had to worry about that. So on questions of religion, for example, um, and questions of abortion, uh, Doug Ford could be somebody who doesn't talk about that very much or be somebody who's pro-choice on abortion. That's not something that a Republican can do. The center of Republican opinion is pro-life and the center of Republican opinion is concerned about uh, the decline of traditional religion. So it's, that's an example of where a Republican national strategy would be different than Doug Ford's strategy. Yeah. Um, and you also um, going back to the way that like the Republican Party could learn from sort of Doug Fordism. Do you view like Doug Ford and like what he stands for to be a way that the Republican Party can move on from Trumpism? The center of the Republican Party is Trumpism without Trump. Um, that doesn't mean everything about Trumpism, but the center of the Republican Party today 
is not afraid of using government power to help people in need. It's not afraid of using government power to create a tight labor market. And it's not particularly in favor of, of the entitlement cuts that would have supported Republic, the Republicans would have supported a decade ago. Uh, and that's particularly true of the people who are the new members, the working class people who voted for Obama in 2012 and voted for Trump in 2020. They are all to the left of the old Republicans, according to a poll that I commissioned uh, in January of 2021. And so Ford is a good example, again, in a Canadian context, but uh, he's a good example of how to be Trumpist without Trump. He's not needlessly divisive. He's not prickly. He's not attacking critics. He's good natured, although you know he's a political fighter. And he targets uh, communities who can be weaned out of the NDP liberal voting habit. And you take a look at, um, I know Canadian listeners are aware of this, but in case for American listeners, around Toronto, there's a, the cities, Brampton, Mississauga, and the Scarborough region of Toronto that are heavily ethnic. They're heavily people by, um, uh, by immigrant Canadians or the children of immigrant Canadians. And uh, the Doug, Ford, Doug Ford's PCs, uh, I believe, I'm doing this for memory, hold 14 of the 17 seats there, gaining the three seats in Brampton this election that they did not hold after the last election. That's quite an accomplishment. That's akin in Canada to what Republicans are trying to do to Latinos here in the Rio Grande Valley, which is attract them in. Uh, a Republican strategy that looks to what Ford's done and tries to create an American version of that would probably succeed just as easily as Ford's strategy has. And Ford uh, also, not only did he win working class seats in area of heavy trade union activity in northern Canada and around Windsor, but in a time when, in an election when turnout went down substantially, the conservative candidate got more votes in the la this most recent election than they got four years ago in a lot of those working class. That means turnout goes down, they get more votes. That means they're turning former opponents into friends. And that's another thing that Republicans can take a look at. They've done a fair good job of that among working class whites in the last six years. They have a ways to go, but they can continue to do that with working class people of color. And as they do that, they'll find that just like Doug Ford, they can win a majority pretty easily. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about uh, government sp spending, deficits, entitlement spending, et cetera. But what are like if the Republican Party wanted to embrace the type of thing that Doug Ford stands for? What are some other positions that they would need to shift in order to go that way? Well, yeah, I think what the Republican Party, the, the center of American public opinion uh, with respect to questions of social issues is moderately conservative on the substance, but moderate to moderately liberal on the rhetoric. Uh, and so you know, what it means is that it, you, know, you go to a typical Republican gathering and people will talk about, um, about religion. And when they talk about religion, they talk about it and ways that somebody who is an orthodox Christian or, you know, an old fashioned Christian and an old fashioned conservative or more accurately orthodox Jew would find attractive. That's not where the center of American public opinion is. It's so talking more about social issues in a way that Doug Ford talks about them, which is in a non-religious way, but in a family focused or community focused way, 
would be something that would build a majority rather than keep us from getting a majority. Yeah. Beyond that, do you think, do you think it, um, trying to embrace what Doug Ford stands for would cause the Republican Party to shift any of their uh, positions with regards to pandemic regulations? Um, you know, Republicans have been divided on that. What they've tended to want to do is the, the, the vocal wing of the party has been more like the New Blue Party or the Ontario Party, the right-wing split-offs of, uh, from uh, the progressive conservatives. You know, no, you know, no mandates, uh, keep the economy open regardless and so forth. Um, but that's not where the center of American public opinion is. The center of American public opinion is more like where uh, the governor of Madrid, uh, Isabel uh, Diaz Ayuso is, which is protect uh, citizen health, uh, but keep the economy open as much as possible. And I think that's more where Ford is. And I think that's where the center of um, the new voters Republicans want to attract are, which is not uh, be reflexively against COVID uh, restrictions, but be much more willing to impose them lightly uh, than uh, where the party base is. Um, you know, I think Ford would probably, particularly in the later era um, time of the pandemic, would be in line with Canadian opinion, maybe a little to the left of where American public opinion is. But again, what you wanna do is craft an American style of Fordism, not simply mimic him because you have to craft your policies and your rhetoric to meet the people who you're trying to persuade. And um, people in Ontario are generally, the center of public opinion is to the left of where and more towards public safety uh, than the, uh, and public health than the center of opinion in the United States. Yeah, uh, though, if you don't mind me asking, which like position do you think has more like merit in terms of like how morally valid it is? Well, you know, uh, um, are you asking my personal opinion? Yeah, your personal opinion. Yeah, my personal opinion, I'm not a COVID, I'm not against COVID uh, restrictions. Um, I don't believe in uh, vaccine mandates. I uh, uh, which of course you don't have in Canada, you don't have a requirement that you get the vaccine. Um, that was discussed and not something that was done. Uh, I tend to be uh, favorable towards uh, lockdowns and spacing when it can be demonstrated and masking when they can be demonstrated to tar retard the uh, um, spread of the virus. But I think that those were overused during the pandemic. Uh, and one can make the argument, given the weakness of protection many of the masks provided, that uh, uh, a masking mandate uh, without actually paying attention to the quality of the masks may have on that done no good at all. And that would explain why a number of studies show that, that places with masking mandates actually did not seem to fare better than non-masking mandate places in the United States, probably because they didn't pay much attention to the masks and their quality, and people were lured into close contact with one another with masks that didn't really protect them. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to switch gears and um, talk about one of some of the things that we could have taken away from some of the Republican primaries that have occurred recently. Um, you mentioned on the Brian Layer show that uh, core support from 
diehard Trumpers as well, short of the majority. Like the whole idea that like the cent when it comes to the center of Republican opinion, those people don't really care about like the controversies surrounding the 2020 election in the same way that Donald Trump does. So could you elaborate a little bit on the ways that the majority of the GOP's base don't really care about those issues and how that should affect the approach taken by people who want to better defend American democracy? I think I think what you any voter group is a coalition and there's a, a tendency in the United States to overweight the hardcore base because they're the people who show up in your face a lot more. Um, but when you actually look at both polls and voting, um, the vast majority of Republican voters don't care about the 2020 election. And you can see that that when Trump has candidates who are making that their primary basis, they don't do very well. Uh, Georgia being the perfect example of that, where he uh, basically tried to take out the Georgia Republican establishment solely on that issue. And a sit former U.S. senator who barely lost re-election in January 2021 lost by over 50 points to the sitting governor. The center of Republican public opinion doesn't care about the 2020 election. And the Georgia race was an example of that, that Trump basically tried to take out the Republican establishment on the basis of they didn't fight to uh, give him the victory he says he deserved. And three quarters of the Republican voters voted against his candidate for governor. A majority voted for the secretary of state, who's the only reason he was being challenged was the argument that he had presided over a fraudulent election. Uh, that cost Donald Trump the state. So a majority of Republic between a majority and three quarters of Republicans backed the establishment precisely to tell Donald Trump and his acolytes to stop talking about something they didn't care about. Yeah, like uh, David Shore once mentioned the whole idea that like when it comes to Trump and his wing of the Republican Party, they're essentially focusing on like non-salient authoritarian issues. And that's sort of important to keep in mind if you want to sort of defend American democracy in that way. Um, no, no, I think authoritarian is the way a Democrat would uh, talk about it. You know, but I think what's clear is that what Trump tried to do after the 2020 election was wrong and unconstitutional. His continued focus on it poses a danger to American democracy, although there's no policies that they've talked about in specific. That are uh, that one can point to, but you know, the the sort of rhetoric and the uh, sort of willingness to dispense with the uh, the, the law when it interferes with your uh, presuppositions is very worrying. And I hope that those candidates who are embracing Donald Trump's fantasies and, and frauds uh, lose because uh, they are people who uh, are not fit to govern a republic. Yeah, definitely. Um, so you also mentioned something interesting in the Brian Layer show about how Mike, you think that Mike Pence like wants to be president. So would you mind elaborating on why you think Mike Pence wants to be president and what he has been doing to sort of try to like further that? Well, Mike Pence's ambition for the presidency has been an open secret in Republican circles for well over a decade. You know, that when he was in the House, he explored running 
2012 and 20, 2008 and decided not to do it. He ran for governor of Indiana instead. Of course, he jumps up when he's taken as vice president. Then he's doing all the things an American candidate would do to prepare for the running, giving speeches around the country, building out a policy um, agenda, building out a, a network of staff. So there's no doubt that he wants to run. Uh, and then the question is whether there's a demand for him. Plenty of American candidates put themselves forward. The question is, is there a demand for Pence? And I think Pence would be a candidate who would appeal to the anti-Trump conservative who has stayed in the Republican Party, but they're not enough to win. The way to get to victory in the Republican Party is to go to the center of Republican Party opinion which is to be, as I said earlier, on policy matters relatively Trumpist, but not be Trump. That's what Ron DeSantis has done in uh, the governor of Florida superbly and why he tends to be viewed here in the United States as the most serious contender to Trump in the Republican Party rather than the former vice president. Yeah. Um, So the whole idea of the Republican Party sort of and whether or not they're sort of dealing in in terms of rhetoric with non-salient authoritarian issues. Um, I do want to sort of focus a little bit on the Georgia like voting law that was passed last year, um, signed into law by Brian Kemp. You talked a little bit about this in the Brian Layer show. Um, It's the one uh, to quote the same article, Uh, The new law imposes new identification requirements for those casting ballots by mail, curtails the use of drop boxes for absentee ballots, allows electors to challenge the eligibility of an unlimited number of voters, and requires counties to hold hearings on such challenges within 10 days. Um, So um, could you elaborate on whether or not you think that laws such as these count as voter suppression? No, they're not voter suppression at all. That's the biggest lie in American politics right now. And uh, it's uh, part of the nefarious effort to brand the Republican Party as something that it's not, which is anti-democratic. You know, look, we just went through an election where we had the largest turnout by far in the primaries that Georgia has ever seen. Um, People can easily vote. There are, you know, it's easy to register. You can vote by mail. You can vote I think it's 12 to 14 days in person, much more than Canada. Georgia's laws are much more liberal with respect to voting than any provinces of Canada's. So if Georgia is undemocratic, your whole country is undemocratic. And uh, that's a point that is not usually mentioned by the people who are advancing this lie. And that's because they know that it's a lie. This is not voter suppression, whether you like the idea or not. Yeah. Um, so you're absolutely right when it comes to voter turnout there uh, compared to what it was like before. But uh, taking into account when uh, the bill was signed into law, what do you think the original intent of um, these types of bills was? I think the idea is that you had a Republican electorate that was rightly or wrongly outraged about the election. And these were efforts to tie down some loose ends. Uh, in American procedure that had really only been adopted, like the drop boxes during the pandemic, to return to the sort of laws that we had before the pandemic. 
They were meant to uh, reassure uh, of people who were being swayed by Trump's lies that voting could still be safe, secure, and honest. And I think actually the Georgia laws have done a fabulous job at doing that. You know, we've seen that um, it's easy to vote. It's easy to register. doesn't matter what your race or your party. Uh, you have access to the ballot. Again, as I mentioned, more access than anywhere in Canada. And in fact, more access than virtually anywhere in the democratic world. Um, and so I just think that uh, what it was, was an effort to, uh, to um, respond to the demand of, uh, of, uh, of a political base, and which is simply what one does in politics, no different than when People in a Democratic Party coalition uh, want to have a particular change in voting laws because they think it will advantage them. They think that higher turnout is produced by more mail-in voting. So Democratic Party politicians liberalize mail-in voting. It's exactly the same thing. It's politicians responding to a demand from their voters. All right. Henry Olson, thank you so much for taking the time to come onto the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Sure. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you like the episode, make sure to follow us on Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, goodbye.